Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Thomas Ross. Welcome to the Neuro Noodle Podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Jansen's Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to promote options for better mental health. Specifically, we focus on the objective data you can receive from a brain map and the positive results of training with neurofeedback. Occasionally, we'll bring on guests who have a different modality. Got to have an open mind, right? This is an all-star cast and are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You get to see some of the behind-the-scenes action. Speaking of Apple Podcasts, really helps if you could give us a five-star rating. It helps get the word out, spread the positive vibe out there, because if you know they can't hear us, we can't help them. If you're not a subscriber, visit neuronoodle.com to sign up for our newsletter. We send out a weekly update. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Thomas Ross, PhD, cognitive neuroscientist, and author of many academic studies. Dr. Thomas, thanks for coming on the show today. Pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Now, Jay mentioned that we should get you on the show. And of course, we always do what Jay says. How do you two know each other? I know everybody knows Jay, but how did you connect? I believe we connected at the ISNR um, sort of uh, conference circuit, right? Very back in the days. I think yeah. I must have started Neurofeedback at 2005, six, And I think maybe... The, the one, the first conference that was in Europe was uh, it's in San, right, in uh, Swansea. But maybe we met even before that. I can't remember exactly the time. Well, it's, <laughs> for me, it, it all blends together. So <laughs> I'm not really good on serializing the past. So uh, uh, picking precise times is difficult. But Swansea was, uh, was definitely one. I, I remember your association with John Grisellier. Uh, who's been an old friend of mine for a long, long time. He, in fact, you've probably been in his office. So you may actually have seen the picture, which he hung on the wall in his office, I understand. He was over at an AAPB meeting, and they have a badge, and they stick little banners beneath the badge. And, and some of them have a very long uh, bib of these badges, you know, hanging down over their bellies sometimes. And uh, the, the longer you've been in the meeting and the more things you do, the more of these little things you get. And he thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. So, and, and I was, I was on the board at the time. So I thought, well, you know, we might as well have some fun with this. And I went up to the front desk and behind the desk, they have all these badges all in bins. And I just grabbed handfuls of various ones. It didn't make any sense. You know, 50-year member, first-time attendee, you know, it didn't make any sense. But we made them a very, very, very long, uh, we, we were calling them a bib, but John called them a cod piece because they became so long. Um, I can't remember which one of his, uh, his students were was standing there next to them. Uh, they, they they had these big, long bibs, and uh, he, he thought that was the funniest thing, and he, uh, he placed that on the wall in his office at one point. So, yeah, silliness. Um, we know each other from the yeah I, I was his PhD student at the time so um, that's that's basically how we know each other and we uh, we so I came to the US multiple times after that for the other ISNR um, meetings I also gave a keynote at the ISNR once a few years back uh, I don't know are you still going there um, Jay I, I don't get out anymore at all. I'm not well enough to attend face to face. Well, nothing's been going on face to face for a couple of years anyway. And, um, but you know, the the meetings were a, a crossroads where we met uh, met many many folks. Your your work with Griselier bridged a whole bunch of uh, different topics from uh, training surgeons to have better performance to athletes and performance to uh, elite musicians and their performance and and then ICA connectivity uh, work and so forth. So uh, you you cut your teeth for uh, probably uh, a good decade with, there with John. Yeah, um, but your more recent work on PTSD, I think, was also uh, uh, quite interesting. Uh, ended up intersecting with with Ruth uh, and, and her work. 
Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I started through the through the kind of the the artistic or more um, peak performance backdoor. So John was interested in work on like perf- uh, enhancing performance in general in this sort of general population as well. Like, were some kind of ex- experts like surgeons or m- musicians and artists and so on and actors and so on. And this was based on this alpha theta work that you know found that there was kind of increasing creativity maybe that could help. Although I would, I would, I would expect that you know, in surgeons, you don't really want them to be too creative. But um, <laughs> right? but we didn't, we didn't find that. Fortunately, <laughs> we find that the SMR protocol was more, more, more beneficial in the surgeons. But essentially, yeah, I, I sort of the, the long story is that I, I sort of uh, the short story actually is that I saw John giving a lecture in London after I finished my master's in France. And I came back to London to do my PhD and I was looking for a PhD a position, you know, working with neuroscience because I did a master's in neuroscience. And there was there were some you know, positions, but they, they, it was difficult to get actually a PhD. Um, I made it to a few interviews and then somebody else took the job. And basically uh, I was wondering, I was like, OK, what am I going to do? What am I going to do next in my science career if, if it's going to happen at all? And then I, I, I stumbled on a lecture kind of saying, OK, John Griselier speaking about peak performance in music and creativity. And I was like, yeah, I'm really interested in music and the mind. So I went for this uh, talk and I, 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 and I saw John and then I was like, I need to speak to him because I really would love to do a PhD in his lab. And essentially I approached him after the conference saying, look, I'm looking for a PhD. Do you have maybe some kind of a, a project for me? Like I could even start for free, you know? At that time it was like, just get your foot in the door. He did say, yes, come, come to my office and you know, we'll talk about it. And at, at that point, there was this uh, surgeon study that I think one of the PhD students that he was working with uh, at that time uh, sort of uh, stopped, uh, uh, sort of left the PhD midway. And then basically um, sort of he gave it all to me, like, you know, complete confidence that I was going to do this right. Well, I had no experience with EG whatsoever. So I was kind of thrown in the deep end, but it was an interesting one where we basically had a little neurofeedback room inside the hospital, inside the eye surgeon hospital. And I was kind of resident there every day. And I saw surgeons, you know, uh, for lunchtime doing your feedback. And, and they used to call it TT with Thomas, which was like t- torture with Thomas. It was like they had to do neurofeedback on top of all their surgeries. You know, they never got any sleep. So probably, you know, they, they actually ended up sleeping during most of the time. <laughs> so that's the, the backstory of that, of that study. Anyway, it was, it was a good time. And, and also these ICNR meetings were kind of the only ones that, kept the neurofeedback field alive, in, in my opinion, at least uh, academically as well. So I was happy to, to meet the community and you know, we met also Barry Sturman came to Swansea. Uh, and also I met the late Joe Camilla that I heard just recently passed away. So I would like to dedicate this podcast to him, to the, really the, the founder of the field that I think uh, nobody um, outside the neurofeedback really appreciates how much his discoveries, uh, you know, basically created this field that I'm not. I totally agree with the dedication. You know, we've lost many major figures um, and Joe Camilla being one of the founding, well, the foundational (laughs) figure, actually. In 2012, Joe gave a, a talk in Europe and uh, he he did a slide of Barry's cats and uh, a quote from Barry that if brain activity is behavior, we should be able to train it, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, but it it all goes back to Joe's work uh, stemming to the 1950s, and you know to a certain extent his his life experience, which was not really always favorable. I mean he he was a minority uh, in the Central Valley uh, before uh, Asians could own land and uh, they, they were uh, field workers and uh, World War II came and they were in an internment camp, uh, which he says wasn't so bad because he didn't have to do field work and uh, he got to play baseball with the kids and whatnot, but it gave him time for introspection. And I think a lot of his focus on internal states may have uh, been spawned from uh, some of that time spent, you know, uh, introspection. But nevertheless, he, he, uh, uh, he, he ended up um, working in Kleitman's lab with Dement and Kleitman on uh, identifying the internal state associated with dreaming and the convergent evidence of 
subjective report and objective measurement of the REM state. And then uh, he, he tried to expand that to uh, making some kind of a identification of what this alpha rhythm was about and um, uh, showed that it could be identified with discrimination training in the 1950s. So it all stemmed from his work and, and it's a huge loss. And I was having some difficulty with it, actually. I'm, you know, not, uh, not without 48 years of knowing Joe, you know. But it's, it's people like yourself that have the bright future for the field that kind of keeps me from just being totally bummed out. So thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's an honor to continue the legacy. And, you know, as in many other domains, there's always the passing of the baton. So, you know, that's the whole point is like somebody makes some seminal discoveries and we, we work on top of the shoulders of giants. And, and I think, you know, there's this, this whole area is really unexplored. I mean, I think it was just uh, opened up, you know, and then now it's, let's see what science can do. Uh, I believe in the scientific process, you know, ultimately, although it's a love-hate relationship in some ways, because this, this field really hasn't taken off for very many years and has been in hibernation, you know, due to many factors. And, you know, we could have long philosophical discussions about why neurofeedback has taken so long to be investigated scientifically, um, or the funding has been very weak as well. And even my own career, you know, without trying to complain too much, it's, it's been a rough ride. So I hope we're now at a point where, you know, the new generations, and I consider myself now maybe even part of the older generation, you can see my gray hairs here, but uh, <laughs> there's everything is relative, but there's, there's many more new uh, scientists who, uh, you know, come to this with a fresh set of eyes, a fresh set of ideas, let's say. They're not burdened by the past and burdened by, you know, other approaches that I think have maybe reached their limits, you know, to some cases, and, and we need innovation. And, you know, as much as science likes to claim that it's innovative, I think it's almost the opposite. Uh, we always keep hitting the same nail on the head, whether it's, uh, you know, like pharma sector is always trying to promote new drugs and new, uh, the same approach a thousand times when we know that it has a certain limitations. Um, so I'm very surprised this hasn't been already tested way back. And I think, you know, there, there's a few papers that came out back in the 60s and 70s that the, Joe and, and uh, Barry Sturman have, have published. And you could think that they would have been, you know, the glass, they broke the glass ceiling where they got the papers into like famous journals like science. Nothing, not, it sort of fizzled out. And, and then I think, you know, from what I heard, the stories were that there was not enough funding. And they would, even though they applied for NIH grants, nothing happened. So I think that's the, really the, the key that, you know, if, if you don't have scientific funding, then what can you do? Like, well, you're not going to be able to do it yourself. Uh, so, but, you know, it's, it's great that this field has survived, let's say, underground or at least, you know, on the surface to, to keep going until uh, other figures maybe got the funding or, you know, like you drop out of the race, somebody else comes in. You know, I was, I was worried that I was going to drop out of the race a few times, frankly. I was, you know, to be honest with you, I was in unemployment for a few years because I didn't get the funding. And yep. then I was just like, I was just saying, well, what do we do? Like, do I just exit science? Because, and I put all my eggs in this basket. And I did that on purpose because I knew that, you know, nowadays you have to specialize. And, and I also believe in it. And I've seen effects myself. So I, I really truly believe that neurofeedback could do something revolutionary, but it required the evidence base. And, and to get the evidence base, you need, you need funding. So, you know, from even though from the studies that we've done, uh, I could still say that maybe interest is, is, is a bit weak compared to other domains, right? So we, yes, we got into some good journals and so on. But as I said, even Joe and, and Barry got into good journals and to, not, to no avail. So it's more about the collective mindset that I think the trajectory of, of human, you know, human consciousness is on in terms of like, okay, we've exhausted one paradigm, here comes the next one. And hopefully we've, we've got to that point now that we can try other technologies and, and maybe even the whole BCI, you know, consumer grade devices, everything going digital, you know, digital health, all those things are feeding into this, this, this whole confluence of, of neurofeedback maybe being the next paradigm that finally science will investigate. 
Thomas, that's that's why we have this podcast going to get the word out. It's our way of trying to get more people together because it seems like uh, Jay brought it up. It's like a circular firing squad. Everybody's operating in their own silo and hopefully we can get more people together. You were quoted in an article uh, not too long ago in the Tech Explorist on ADHD Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say uh, Pranjal uh, Mehar, it addressed ADHD. And, you know, one of the things that at least I know as a layman of the group that the efficacy for ADHD and neurofeedback is uh, a- at the top. Do you want to talk about, uh, I'll throw this out there and then Skip, you can take over how neurofeedback can help and the studies that you've seen or even done because you have so many uh, publications out there. Because we have parents listening to this show. We have end, end users. We have technicians. We have clinicians. And if we can do anything to get the word out there, maybe everybody's getting, di- all the kids are getting diagnosed with ADHD. How can neurofeedback help with ADHD? I'll hang up and I'll listen for my answer. Well, you know, as a scientist, I, I, I cannot be sort of um, too publicizing about certain uh, t- you know, approaches because I need to take a sort of impartial and evidence-based approach, right? So that's the scientific side. Then there's my human side, which is about, okay, what are the other options, right? And, you know, we, we know, okay, so although neurofeedback has been the most successful in ADHD, I would say, or at least the number, most number of studies on it, you have to consider that even though, you know, psychotropic drugs don't necessarily work very well. Methylphenidate, the, the main sort of uh, treatment for ADHD is at top of the list of the most successful pharmaceutical drugs for brain disorders. So it has an effect size of around one, which is hard to beat, I have to say. So you have to show the gold standard that you know, this can be replaced with something else that has some other benefits. In case of neurofeedback, that doesn't have side effects and it can have even maybe be a cure because once you stop neurofeedback, you shouldn't necessarily have to keep doing it. Whereas you have to take medication all the time. So that's kind of the reference point that we kind of meet, match at least, neurofeedback matches at least the, the effect size of methylphenidate. Now, recently we did a study with theta beta neurofeedback, sort of the old uh, the, the older protocol. And we found that, that that wasn't necessarily the case that even though neurofeedback had an effect size of around 0.5, which is you know still pretty good, it, did, it didn't sort of displace, let's say, uh, uh, methylphenidate. So... We have to keep, let's, let's say, looking for maybe potentially more specific markers of ADHD, knowing also that ADHD is not just, you know, just a term that one uses behaviorally, that's, that's clear, but also that it has a many different sort of signatures neurally, right? So there's different subtypes and so on. And we know more and more we're grappling with this kind of heterogeneity, this kind of diversity of, of even within a particular disorder, different patterns that different people present, different children present. So it's not a static thing that you can just kind of lock onto and, and shoot the rocket at, but it's more like a different flavors of, of the same problem, but different nuances, different dimensions. Some have more hyperactivity, some have more inattention. Then, you know, neurally that's expressed by different patterns of the brain waves, like some might have yeah. more theta and so on. So you need a more tailored approach, let's say. So that's, I think, the harder part is like, how do we boost the efficacy? So I think the efficacy is there, at least uh, an effect size of 0.5, which is considered you know, medium to large. But if we want to really displace the sort of most successful pharmaceutical drug for brain disorders, uh, we need to explore more and get more specific in terms of the protocols. Um, yeah. that's, that's my summary. But I would say that it, has, it definitely has a future. Uh, and yeah. you know, the conceptually, it has been demonstrated to work especially for those types that, for example, when the protocol does fit the, the, the phenotype, where let's say high theta-beta ratio is shown that it correlates with, with the efficacy of the neurofeedback protocol. So for those that have a high theta-beta ratio, then neurofeedback seems to be effective. That's, for example, the studies by Gavin Zleben and Lau and, and Heinrich's group. For those that don't demonstrate that, you know, let's say abnormality, you might need some other protocols that are uh, more specific and, and more applicable to that, this, uh, that signature, right? And maybe even looking at other markers, so going beyond simple power-based measures, you know, uh, based on uh, sort of oscillatory power, but like maybe connectivity might be a more specific marker of the problem. But we're only going to get, get we're only getting into 
that sort of complexity uh, as as you know technology improves and processing single processing improves as well. Yeah. That's the difficulty with an experiment. It's it's easy to set up an experiment, but uh, having one that customizes the treatment to the patient ends up being very difficult to end up constructing. You're mm-hmm. absolutely correct. There's multiple phenotypes or clusters of uh, ADD types, and the the training has to match their type. Otherwise, you don't get the proper outcome. Uh, the the difficulty at this point in uh, clinical work is that uh, the clinicians have uh, so many treatment options and not all of them end up having uh, literature support at this point. Uh, uh, some of them do, uh, usually the older, uh, older simpler uh, protocols end up having at least some literature support. Unfortunately, the, the field uh, progresses without necessarily all of the, the scientifically published support that it would uh, hopefully have. But, you know, uh, I, I started in the field in 1972 where there wasn't any scientific literature support for anything uh, uh, other than uh, training alpha, basically, or training SMR. You know, I, I had a clinical laboratory. We actually wrote a grant in 1974 for alpha training in alcoholics. It wasn't funded. The government quit funding in the 70s. We, we could see positive clinical outcomes. I was excited about the field back then in the early 70s, and I'm even more excited about it now. At this point, there's actually a, a fairly solid scientific literature. And there's a lot of different patterns that are, are found to be associated with ADHD, and, and some of them are contradictory, like at first sight. You know, you might find you have, like in children, you have lower beta power in ADHD, but there's also the higher power. So how can it be related to it? Right? It makes sense. But in fact, it might make sense from the point of view of an inverse Q curve where you have sort of optimal level, like an intermediate level of, of power or the way that, you know, some of these the brains are tuned to be in a kind of a sweet spot. And then any, any deviation from that sweet spot, whether it's high or low, creates, you know, dysfunction, mm-hmm. cognitive dysfunction. So yeah. these are models that haven't yet been necessarily uh, sort of uh, absorbed by mm-hmm. the neuroscience community. You know, a lot of people still think up and down and high is good or low is bad and and so on. And, and essentially, yeah. we need to revise also, we have to get a better idea of how the brain functions, how brain uh, activity is related to optimal function. And from there, then, uh, you know, develop neurofeedback protocols based on those tools. And I think, interestingly, like neurofeedback is kind of, you know, developed in the same uh, sort of dynamic as, as QG, you know, they kind of go hand in hand, you know, you have the QG and the neurofeedback. And uh, both of those, I think, are seminal you know, fields, uh, even on their own right, because just now recently people have started looking at, you know, quantitative EEG as, as something that you could classify, you know, different sy- symptoms or, or a new machine learning. And, you know, this was being already done a long time ago by Eroy John and, and, and Robert Thatcher and so on. And, you know, comparing your brain to a normative database where you're looking at these kind of Z-score deviations or differences, whether it doesn't matter whether they're high or low, but it's a kind of the, the deviation that's important. And, you know, new models of psychiatric disease exactly point to that. So now, you know, people and publications are being uh, reported in, in, in very nice journals, good journals about normative normative modeling. And, you know, you never see Gilroy John being cited in those journals, right, in those papers. And, and on Twitter, I kind of highlighted that. I said, you think you're inventing this thing, but actually... Somebody else invented this before you, but you just didn't read the literature because you're stuck in fMRI. But if you look at the EEG, they already came up with these concepts a long time ago. But this, so this is a kind of a little bit also reinventing the wheel in some ways, because as the new generations come, they think, oh yeah, we're going to promote this as a new thing. And you know, to get their papers published, they, want, they need to make it look novel. So whether it's unwittingly or wittingly that they don't report previous you know, fields or previous approaches, uh, it's kind of sad that that, that happens. Uh, so I would say that, you know, both in the fact that neurofeedback, people are finally doing neurofeedback, that's uh, vindication that that was the right way to do things, or at least to, to investigate this area, which was really badly funded. And the fact that QG also, normative, normative modeling, is coming back into the fray, again, as a vindication of, you know, you could say maybe even fields that are outside of science to begin with, and then suddenly... Well, voila, we're back to the same to, to the starting point. So 
it's ironic, really. Have mentioned the you know, paradigm shift, and you know, geographically, we're in different spots. So I wanted to ask you about that in in just a second here. But over, you know, in, in the states, how how we come about with ADHD diagnoses predominantly is through the use of the DSM, which is a pretty um, vulnerable punching bag that we try to work out on on this show as much as we can because it's based on observable symptoms, right? And so mm-hmm. our paradigm, despite you know what we're trying to accomplish on this show and, and the folks that listen to it and everybody that's in the choir, so to speak, uh, would prefer maybe if we came from you know a, a neurological basis of generation of behaviors versus just what we see, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we struggle, I think, with that being the predominant way to get to a diagnosis. And so we're coming at it, it seems like, um, when, when we meet with people that aren't in the neurofeedback world or even neuroscience world, that we're talking about things that just are unfamiliar. And it's, it's almost a different language in, in, uh, of, of sorts, right? So all that to ask you this, and Jay, please jump in too, but what's, what's the climate like where you are? You, you know, you've already referred to a paradigm shift and maybe different ways of approaching behaviors. Like, Hey, it's not just that you're having trouble sitting still. So you have ADHD. It's like, Hey, let's go, let's see what's going on and what's contributing to you having difficulty sitting still maybe through EEG or other Mm -hmm. ways of, of monitoring or visualizing this activity. Can you speak to that? You know, that's the overall kind of dream of, of, of cognitive neuroscience and uh, neuropsychiatry in some ways is to kind of try to explain these behavioral differences with, with some neural, you know, underpinnings. Now it's easier said than done, right? And so far it's actually used by a lot of groups as a, a sort of a, a null finding that in fact, we haven't found anything really reliable using all these fancy methods, right? Neuroimaging and, and, and all, even animal models and so on. And that since the, let's say, the, predict, the predictive power of using neural markers for DSM disorders is, you know, verging on 60, 70, maybe basically 70%, not higher than that, I would say in most cases, that they're kind of worthless and that we should give up on the whole biomedical model. Now, I'm kind of, understand both sides. I didn't think that you can explain everything with biology, although the brain does generate behavior. So, you know, by, by definition, we should be able to find it. Now the causes are, is a different matter, whether, you know, the brain disorder causes are genetic or environmental. And I think they're probably a combination of both, but that argument I think is, is, is less interesting. Um, what's more interesting is, is, you know, can we find more specific markers? Okay, the current markers we have, you know, like say P300 for ADHD, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not bad. And it can maybe help diagnosis, but at the moment it can only do so as an auxiliary, so sort of adjunctive thing where it can maybe inform diagnosis, but it cannot be the whole thing because it can only explain 70% of the variance, right? And you also have to question, okay, do the psychiatrists also, you know, diagnose disorders just like that willy-nilly, right? You know, not necessarily completely uh, logically, right? Because they just, tick, uh, uh, you know, tick some questionnaires, although usually they're cutoff values. But, you know, famously, they've done a study where they tried to do machine learning on, on just basically the questionnaire uh, sort of values, and they, they couldn't really get to the same classification grades that, you know, and also inter-rater variability between psychiatrists can vary uh, based on diagnosis as well. So diagnosis is not a, a hard fact. It's, it's, it's quite variable also between doctors. Um, so I think we're in both domains, whether behavioral or neural, there is a lot of uh, sort of, it's, it's still a bit fuzzy. Uh, and although the doctors, you know, they claim the upper ground because they're, you know, elected to uh, to, to make those diagnoses, they they still have the sort of the final say on, you know, who ha- who do- has or doesn't have ADHD. But I think hopefully with more technology and more more um, advanced uh, signal processing, uh, we might find some of these, you know, signatures that could be more specific to the behavior. But I think for that to happen, we also need to have a science of behavior that is, let's say, more specific as well. Because at the moment, you know, we do questionnaires. That, and some of these tests are also a bit simple, like computerized tests like Tove and so on. They, they, they just look at one dimension. So we need to expand this behavioral, you know, sampling or behavioral batteries to be more specific, 
uh, or let's say have multiple dimensions that we can then kind of gauge. And then from that use some kind of fancy machine learning to see whether we can map that back into the brain. And I think as we've seen with uh, all technological changes now recently, especially with AI and you know, deep learning, that maybe that could give us that extra edge that we were missing. Now, this is just a big hypothesis, but definitely we're missing something like 30% here you know, to explain. And whether the EG signal, which is simple enough to you know, translate, has that capacity, that information to really diagnose something as complicated as a psychiatric disorder, we have to see. But the hope is that maybe some special techniques that you know, use neural nets, that take out the features themselves. So far, we've been engineering features ourselves, you know, taking out the amplitude. We think this is what's really informative or not. But in fact, we've all, we've all been kind of going down the same route, you know, connectivity or power or so on. But who knows what, you know, in more, let's say, uh, not intelligent, but let's say more refined uh, pipelines will we'll, we'll come up with, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the hope, but we will see. Oh. Uh, yeah. Sure. It always it always starts with a patient coming to a professional for an opinion as to what's going on, and the, the as such the the initial presentation is going to end up having to have some kind of an opinion based on the symptom presentation. So the the DSM is going to live in some fashion, but it it, it doesn't predict treatment. It it basically tells the professional that. Um, they need to do some testing. And if, if the behavior of ADD, ADHD were to trigger an EEG, uh, which is quantitatively processed, and an event-related potential, a visual CPT task, uh, which you can break down with component analysis, you're going to get the same thing you get in an IVA of omission, errors, commission errors, reaction time, variability, but you also get the components of the EEG that correspond with sensory detection, sensory processing, motor engagement, motor inhibition, and then self-monitoring, the, the, the last uh, component in, in the list that's been identified by Yuri Kropotov's work. The EEG basically can also then identify whether there's beta spindles, which is an outlier pattern. It's not the most common uh, pattern in ADD, ADD, ADHD, but it requires a specific intervention. Uh, it, uh, it can also identify the rare approximately 10 to 20% that have epileptiform discharges. And if your brain has an epileptiform discharge, you basically need to have some kind of a stabilizing agent or neurofeedback for stabilization or both. Um, but, you know, you, it's an unexpected finding. The doctors don't expect that your ADD is because of epileptiform discharges. Um, they, they assume uh, it's a dopamine deficiency in the striatum, so they give you methylphenidate, or uh, your alpha is too slow, so they give you a, an amphetamine. If you have beta spindles, they can give you a channel blocker like guanfacine or uh, clonidine. But uh, there's specific matches, uh, biomarkers, basically allow you to match appropriate treatments with the symptom-based cluster of ADD, ADHD as, a, a, uh, as the initial complaint. But, you know, very much like a cardiologist can't just send you for an angioplasty if you're complaining of chest pain, because half the people have indigestion, not a, not a cardiac problem. You, you can't let the DSM behavior presentation guide your treatment because you're going to be wrong a lot of the time. There's a lot of inappropriate angioplasties if everybody that had chest pain got one. So what we need to do is essentially listen to the story with, with as much empathy as we can muster and then set the story aside and do the testing that's indicated by the story. And if you're complaining of a neurocognitive deficit of some sort, I think they can actually examine the brain, the organ that's involved with the behavior that's problematic. It only makes sense. Now, psychiatry and neurology aren't really talking to each other. If you're a psychiatrist and you want to become boarded in EEG, you have to actually go back and take a neurology uh, residency, which is kind of crazy. You're both, uh, both professionals are focused on brain function. 
It's just that psychiatry doesn't do as much, you know, depth analysis of brain function. It's listen to the story and prescribe medication for clinical psychiatry generally. But, you know, psychiatry will give you an anticonvulsant uh, medication um, because other things haven't worked and they don't have to have you having convulsions in order to give you an anticonvulsant medication. Uh, they can give it to you to help stabilize your brain function. So, um, uh, but if you go to a neurologist with the EEG showing an epileptiform discharge and say, would you medicate this patient? Unless you're having a seizure, they say, no. We actually have a very nice paper showing in an N of 76 cases, a psychiatric patient that has epileptiform dischargers when you give them an empirical trial and an anticonvulsant medication, 85% of their patients get better psychiatrically. It's not that they were having seizures in the first place. So the anticonvulsant didn't change their seizures because they didn't have them. Uh, but the, the disturbance on brain function was stabilized and their psychiatric presentation improved. Psychi psychiatric treatment, show me an 85% positive treatment result somewhere. Yeah, that, that, that's the lock and key, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a pharmaceutical intervention that has a, a, a distinct lock and key effect psychiatrically. And, um, and again, uh, neurology would deny that medication to those patients uh, because, again, if you're not having a seizure, their standard of practice is to deny you that dangerous medication when, in fact, you know, it's quite manageable. Psychiatry uses it all the time. Uh, enough DSM bashing. That, that's exactly what uh, I found once. I, I, I saw a kid who had ADHD, well, diagnosed with ADHD, and the psychiatrist, or I can't remember now who the doctor was, but they didn't check the brain. And yep. when I checked it, uh, we found interictal ep epileptic from discharge, which is like these little spikes, right? Mm -hmm. And that was causing the ADHD. It wasn't just a psychiatric whatever, you know, the, 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 anyway, the line between psychiatry and neurology is shrinking, I think, anyway. But, but if you do see a psychiatrist, unless it's a neuropediatrician who, you know, is specialized in seeing, checking your brain first, you will be diagnosed with psychiatric disorder, where, whereas you might actually have some epileptiform uh, problems that will never be picked up upon uh, because they do not yet dabble in these kind of uh, brain measures so uh, i yeah. think slowly with time you know as neuroscience becomes more and more validated psychiatry will move into that domain but at the moment we're still back with the same tools uh, from the you know, 1970s where you just kind of uh prescribing medication semi-randomly without any kind of brain information whatsoever and that needs to change as soon as possible yeah absolutely along, along yeah. with um well in in, in given the DSM a break, Jay. Maybe we can bash neuropsychology for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll and we have a co-host that's not here today, Thomas. But Laura and I are neuropsychologists and know each other from our training. But we're we're using some tools of assessment that I think might have come around right after fire was discovered or the wheel, you know, whichever one of those was earlier. We're in between, you know. And as we talk in, in conversations like this. It is promising and, and a little bit exciting to know that there are some things that are available, meaning they're, they're not just in places that are funded and, you know, universities or wherever, hospitals that have the finances to do this. So you can do things like ERP, certainly QEEG in offices like ours and get a, 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 a monumentally different data set than you do with, and I'm not going to throw any particular tests under the bus, but you know, with the way we currently do things, you're just getting such a different data set on, on what's going on for this person. And I'm not saying clinical observation and experience aren't worth anything. I'm saying I can watch people do things and generate some hypotheses on what might be contributing to what they're doing. But shoot, if there's a way to know that air quotes, right, definitively, why not cut out the middleman, right? The, you know, and, and my biases and and whatever else might be going on that day for me, right? And if and if we can, we neuropsychologists can start to adopt some of these other avenues of assessment. I think, well, one, it's it's incredibly exciting and just kind of hopeful 
uh, on our end that we'll be able to maybe just be able to delineate that much more clearer what's really going on for these folks so we can treat what's bringing them in. The question is just, uh, you know, there are some things that are more validated than others, like epileptiform, I think it's very well validated that that's going to have a problem with cognitive impairment and then, you know, and you need medication for that or even other types of treatment. But some other things are a little bit more subtle. So this is the thing, like it's a question of what works and what's the evidence base behind it. Now, some clinicians already have their own way of you know, seeing, okay, this seems to work in my, in my experience, so let's, let's deploy it. Uh, for others, you know, like scientifically speaking, publication-wise, the, the, the bar is much higher, so it's much more difficult to, to prove. Although there's a lot of papers out there that show that, for example, ADHD is associated with at least 20% uh, epileptic form discharges sometimes. So it's, it's a big elephant in the room that nobody's talking about, and even though it's already in the literature. So it's a little bit the case of uh, small samples or s- smaller, less impactful journals publishing more let's say pro- provocative or at least provocative for the mainstream ideas that are not really picked up by the main- mainstream for you know many different reasons, bias and so on. Uh, they don't want the paradigm to change. And it's the same thing happened with QG, you know, even though we know that a lot of these ADHD patterns are linked to you know, immature EG kind of development and so on. This is not really uptaken yet by, by the industry. So uh, it still takes some time to validate these you know, fully uh, but again, it's, it's always kind of tempered by the fact that maybe not many of these signatures are 100% specific or sensitive, right, because of this heterogeneity. So we're kind of mixed into this problem where some things work, but for some people, and then they don't work for others. So how do you square up all that as a, as a sort of a very definitive diagnosis, diagnosis or prognosis, although even without that, it's, it's difficult to do it. It's just that, you know, psychiatrists have selected the, the fact that the behaviorally that you know dsm is 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 king although it's far from it because you know why would you uh, sort of define somebody by just one label it's like saying one cocktail is just the main ingredient right uh, so we are they are new sort of directions called rdoc you know research the main criteria that are supposedly going beyond that they're saying okay we should look at dimensions so i think we'll have a probably a combination of that behaviorally for dimensions and as well as neurally. So, you know, you might have one marker that is good for this child or, and then another one for another. And then we need to parse, parse these markers from each other and see, okay, can we get, can, can kind of, you know, the full spectrum, can we explain the full spectrum? And until then we need to be still cautious about the conclusions, right? The psychiatrists that I've worked with have all basically come to the conclusion that they don't want to prescribe any medication before they actually look at the EEG. Um, I worked with uh, Camp Lejeune as a uh, no-bid military contractor a long time ago before Sequester got rid of the funding. And uh, one of the first things they did is test to see whether we could provide any incremental benefit. I mean, why pay people to do data analysis if it's not going to benefit your clients? So uh, we got uh, six cases. The first case they sent us was a a fellow who uh, had been hearing voices, and this is a Marine, uh, um, hearing voices telling them to kill people. Um, and uh, so the psychiatrist, obviously, you know, hearing voices, you're going to give them an antipsychotic. And they give an antipsychotic, and the voices got worse, and they had to basically uh, uh, put him into the, into the brig. Um, uh, we looked at his EEG. And he actually had had epileptiform content, probably from one of his blast injuries. He had a bunch of them. Um, And we we, uh, stopped the examination and asked to speak to the attending uh, nurse or physician and said, well, you've got him on an antipsychotic. It makes the discharges that he's having worse, which is why he got worse when you started to medicate him. You have to switch him over to anticonvulsants instead of antipsychotics because antipsychotics make the discharges worse, floridly worse. And uh, they, uh, uh, they were afraid, first of all, imagine you're a psychiatrist and the person's hearing voices telling them to kill people and somebody tells you, well, take them off those antipsychotic medication. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that you think, well, geez, what's my liability if something happens? Well, he was in the brig, so they switched him uh, uh, to Lamictal uh, and away from 
uh, the the uh, uh, which is a sedating antipsychotic, and the voices went away. Uh, the the epileptiform content was effectively uh, treated, and the voices went away. Serendipity being what it was, of the first six cases, we had three people that had temporal lobe epilepsy discharges. The odds of that are like a billion to one or something. That's you know, temporal lobe epilepsy is not that damn common. But um, obviously, the difficult clinical cases that they wanted us to consult on gave a heavy loading in in uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. But uh, I I basically have for quite a few years now. Um, when I used to travel to Europe to do lectures, I would walk in. Martin uh, Arns would set up the lectures. Uh, I would walk in and he'd hand me six cases I'd never seen before. And I would look at the EEG and the QEG and tell them about the patient with no history other than the age. And at the end of that, uh, each case, I would say, okay, whose, whose patient was this? What did I get right? What did I get wrong? What did I miss? Um, and after you do six in a row, and effectively describe the neuropsychological uh, uh, presentation of the client, people realize that the brain is actually important uh, with respect to their neuropsychological presence. And you can identify their symptom presentation within the EEG. And at that point, the rest of the class uh, to finish off the multiple day, um, they would be in two or three people, they'd get a list of the symptoms and they'd have the data and they'd have to match up the symptoms with the, with the EEG findings. Well, they knew you could reverse engineer it blindly, uh, but nobody does that. That's a parlor trick. You know, uh, you know it's, it's, an, it's an impressive way to show the capability, but it's just a parlor trick. Nobody does that. It, people that interpret EEG either have seen the patient or they get a referral with some information about the patient. So, um, you know, the, the, the class basically knew that each of these symptoms uh, had to have some biomarker associated with it, then they had to match those up. I, I know it can be done. It's just not commonly being done. Uh, I, I'm kind of pushing towards the go ahead and use the DSM, but at that point, do your lab testing to figure out what you're really going to do to treat the patient because the DSM doesn't tell you how to treat there is not enough training in this domain, or maybe it's not, you know, disseminated enough. The knowledge that also Jay has, maybe it's best for you to write a book as well with Jay. I don't know how many you've written so far, but somehow distill that knowledge that people can, you know, tap into. Um, and for those that haven't had that amount of clinical experience, you know, how do they get onto that bandwagon? And I think probably in the future, as you said, this is you learned this from experience, looking at patterns, reverse engineering with the symptoms and seeing what are the connections. And, and then maybe, you know, if we have enough data that's open and, and people can mine it, you know, scientifically using new machine learning methods, maybe we can get to some patterns that we, we, we think are really reliable that we can actually predict. And then basically, it, you know, an EEG will be a standard thing that the computer will then, you know, sort of de decipher what is it that's part of the symptoms, which patterns are linked to which symptoms, and then we can treat those with neurofeedback, right? Yeah. But that's the goal, that's the ultimate dream that that would happen. And then we can just get away from the behavior, well, the, not completely, but- the, like, neuropsych the neuropsychologist testing, the detailed testing, tells you basically fairly accurately what brain location isn't working. Yeah. You know, wh where, where is the problem? Right. But when you go there and look, it doesn't tell you what you're gonna find. Uh, the EEG, you can look at the EEG and you see where the problem is and what kind of deviation it is. The, the, it's not a reversible equation. You can't go from the symptoms, which will only predict the location and tell what's going to be happening there. But if you look at the EEG, you already know the location of the deviation because you can see it and you know which kind of deviation it is so you can match up the appropriate approach. So I... I it, it, it's, it's unfortunately not a reversible equation because it'd be wonderful if the neuropsychology uh, screening would end up predicting precisely uh, how to treat. It gives you a reliable DSM cluster uh, by telling you where the problem is, but it doesn't, it doesn't unfortunately tell you what pattern is there and what treatment matches with that pattern. Luckily, the EEG going in the reverse direction 
uh, ends up being something that can tell you uh, where things are wrong and kind of how to how to fix it, um, uh, since you can see what what the deviant pattern is. Someday, maybe Jay, huh? And and Thomas, someday, maybe, right? Well, yeah, someday, exactly. With enough um, data and computational kind of connections, that you know, I think that what what Jay is talking about is this sort of a, a, a very sort of well-known principle in complex systems where you try to explain the low dimensional system, which you can say maybe behavior, you know, it falls into a few clusters, like somebody's inattentive or not, or you know, somebody has loss of consciousness or not, but then the, 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 the network or the, the neural substrates that kind of generate that is the high dimensional. So you can go from high dimension to low dimension and there's a pathway, but you cannot necessarily go in the reverse direction when you go from Sometimes you can go from low to high dimension and also predict what are the high dimension. But obviously, we're looking, we're working with many, many more variables in the brain. You know, like billions of nerve cells and networks and so on, explaining something more, more basic, as in a behavior. So we should tap into that high dimensional space as much as possible. And I hope that the EEG non-invasively has enough informative power to, to do that prediction. And we we can only know late, later on with enough data. But if it doesn't, then it's going to have to be matrix style where, you know, we just plug in all these sensors into the brain and <laughs> Neuralink. I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it won't come to that. Neuralink is, is I, I think a, a project um, uh, that is having some difficulty at this point. Um, yeah. uh, the, uh, I, I think they just lost the, uh, one of the heads of the company um, as well. Uh, they're, they're attempting to, uh, not only uh, allow the brain computer interface to have the brain operating a computer, but also the computer operating the brain. Um, uh, and I, uh, I, I don't know that uh, they're, they're going to get past their first experiment. One of the things they're trying to do is essentially take an ALS patient who's become totally paralyzed. And at that point, get him to operate um, a, a mouse, computer mouse, or XYZ, or s something on the computer. Niels Burbomer in Germany worked with ALS patients, and he had to train them when they still had some movement capability. Uh, you, when you can't move anymore at all, there's a learned disability. You don't even try to move. And right now, the Neuralink learning from a monkey to play Pong basically learns from the movement that the monkey's doing, how to read the brain uh, to, to end up operating the Pong game without actual movement. But you had to have actual movement to train the computer. So uh, if you've got somebody who's got a learned passivity of, of having become totally paralyzed with ALS, uh, Burbomer showed that you couldn't train them with a slow cortical potential how to operate things. You had to do that when they still had some, you know, volitional attempt. And uh, I, unfortunately, I, I think Elon Musk's group has uh, designed an experiment that's doomed to fail. Wait till they're totally paralyzed with learned, learned inability and you're not going to end up having the computer learn the patterns um, that they end up needing to know. They'll, as we've said earlier today, uh, they they didn't do their homework and go back and look at what had been done before. Uh, they designed their experiment uh, uh, as though you could uh, get somebody who's totally paralyzed to operate something uh, by training them after the fact. That's that's my fault. You, you, it's a toss up between DSM and Neuralink to get get Jay going. <laughs> Thomas, you have so many publications. What what are you working on uh, next? Before we let you go, ThomasRoss.com. T O M A S R O S dot com. Right. All right. We got an H. I'm a I'm a I'm an immigrant. Got got so, it. <laughs> Aren't we yeah. all? <laughs> yeah, so exactly, especially in the US, you know. Yeah, I'm just uh, working on uh, I'm, I'm working on um, ADHD, obviously, but we changed track a bit. We, you know, we were working with Alpha a lot, and I think we're going to continue doing that. Although we tried to get funding for that for like three years from the Swiss Science Foundation and 
they kept kept on moving the goalposts. In the end, we just gave up, even though we provided all the data that they wanted. You know, you, nowadays you want you need to submit a grant with preliminary data. So we actually did the whole experiment in the first case because they rejected it twice. But that time we had to change experiment to say, okay, well, let's do long term now. But then in the end, they didn't want to fund that. So there's been some interesting work we've done with alpha and ADHD and PTSD that I still think is, is very um, maybe relevant to investigate, at least to cover our basis on the whole narrative of excitation inhibition ratio, because the EI balance, the excitation inhibition balance is kind of an important marker of you know, where your brain is at in terms of like how is it firing too much or little. Um, so it could have very general implications for psychiatric disorders, um, you know, transdiagnostically, like going all the way from PTSD, where the EI balance could be high and, and ADHD where it could be high or low, depending. So we use our kind of alpha as a proxy for that, where high alpha power is usually an indicator of more inhibition in the brain. And so you can kind of modulate the alpha in both directions to try to tune that to, to this kind of optimal point of intermediate excitability. And that could have, you know, important um, implications for um, basically uh, cognitive, cognitive performance, going from attention to anxiety and so on. But apart from that, going away from that marker, we're now starting to look at also uh, EG microstates, which is this kind of a specialty biomarker of, of the lab I'm working in at the moment, which is Professor Michelle's lab. Uh, this is, uh, you know, in a nutshell, it's, it's another kind of marker that looks at the spatial kind of uh, topography of uh, you know the, the different samples that you, your brain sort of the EG visits. So you, you take a certain patterns of the EG across the scalp, and you look at you know which kind of uh, cluster of of spatial patterns it looks like uh, you know sample by sample, and then you can kind of cluster them into five or two to up to ten like different uh, sort of configurations. And we know from QG, you know, some of these configurations can be like frontal midline theta, then occipital alpha, then maybe diagonal configurations and so on. So this is quite validated work back going back all the way to the work of Lehman in the, in the 70s as well. So uh, this could have some more specificity or at least a different kind of lens onto which one could look at the EG dynamics. And it's, it's an important it's, one as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like microstate and analysis of the default mode network or resting state network basically shows that there's four pieces of it that rapidly flip-flop between the pieces. And it looks like a stable state in an fMRI machine because of the smearing of time. But uh, the dynamics within that network are visible in the EEG. And uh, uh, Roberto Pascal Marquis did a very nice paper uh, on that already. But every single one of the networks that's been identified within the fMRI world ends up needing to have a microstate decomposition of it to find out what's the dynamics within the network. Because ultimately, there are people that are modeling the network as though they're stable states, and they're not. I mean, if you modeled the default mode network as though the, uh, all four of the major hubs within it had to be present, you'd have a hell of a time finding that because they're not present at the same time. Uh, they, they, they flip-flop between the pieces. Yeah. I, I suggest that the brain resting state, the brain isn't a resting state. It's twiddling its thumbs. There's still, there's still activity going on. They're not doing anything necessarily terribly productive. It's an internal state, but it's not idled. And uh, again, every single network that's fMRI identified needs to be decomposed with the microstate analysis. It's, there's a whole career out there for a whole bunch of people. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of work on this new kind of uh, sort of direction called yeah. dynamical functional connectivity, where you know, if you take uh, the average of the old uh, connectivities, that that's kind of static connectivity, and then you can have like different states within that uh yeah. in the whole stressing state about how the different you know regions couple together in, in smaller windows and the microstate analysis is kind of similar to that it's just not connectivity but more like state-based in terms of the, the the total topography it's maybe a little bit of an older method it's it assumes also that these states are kind of discrete which i agree with jay they're not necessarily discrete because there's multiple states riding on top of each other and then basically the microstate analysis takes the winner, like the winner takes all kind of state that is, so it's kind of a cluster analysis, although of course there's multiple clusters that could be coactive, 
but if even even if you take this kind of very simple model or simple lens onto the brain, you do find that some of these microstates can predict brain disorders, or at least, you know, like for example, we did a study recently, which hopefully will be published. We found that this topography D seems to predict ADHD, um, independent of the power difference between between yeah. subjects. So it's an additional marker that could be useful, also yeah, for neurofeedback. It seems quite sensitive to schizophrenia. Yeah, uh, so the, schizophrenia, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, we found, I mean, I, I, the paper hasn't been published yet. It's not even on preprint, but, uh, you know, in schizophrenia, the microstate D is uh, too short, right? And neuroleptic, uh, sorry, um, yeah, neuro, uh, neuroleptics like uh, antipsychotics usually will restore the, 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 the sort of the value of the D to be longer compared to, to normalize it compared to the, the normal population. But what we find in ADHD is actually you have the opposite where the state is too long. And if you think schizophrenia is an anti, uh, anti-dopaminergic drugs, right? Antipsychotics that should make it longer. And in fact, in, in ADHD, you take dopaminergic drugs. So one makes it longer and the other one should bring it down. So yep. it's an interesting... Uh, uh, potential psychophysiological link, but we have to see whether that, again, my hunch is that probably, okay, in this group of people, we, although we use the replication sample, we find the same thing, you're still gonna get different signatures of these microstates. So you're not gonna have everybody being just one microstate. You might have a, a little bit more of D and a little bit less of A, and then another person would have more of B and less of D or whatever. Again, it could, you could find subclasses, but again, you could, throw maybe some normative modeling at it, like Z-squared deviations yeah. for each microstate and, and see, you know, maybe turn into a neurofeedback particle based on that. So Pete, you can see why I think that the field has a hugely bright future. The future's so bright, I had to cover one eye, you know, so. Uh... You go blinded by the light. <laughs> Thomas Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to chat and uh, you know talk about all these issues. They're not simple. Nothing is black and white, uh, but yeah. we are moving in the right direction, and, and we want to create more therapies that are you know non non uh, pharmacological, that have less side effects and that have the efficacy that's required. It just requires more time to literally mine the, the complexity of the brain, which is you know apparently the most complex complex things in the, in the universe. So it's not that easy. We don't even know ourselves. <laughs> And again, your website is uh, thomasross.com with no H, T-O-M-A-S. Yes. R-O-S.com. Tons of uh, publications on there, tons. There's a lot of publications, and hopefully it's not just Greek to everybody. I know that academic papers can be very, you know, a bit kind of uh, too, too many terminologies and difficult to know what's going on. But I also have a few videos there about uh, trying to make it also, like, understandable, hopefully. Right. So people can uh, can try to look at those videos and see if they yeah. it makes more sense yeah. from a video, you know, with slides and, and, and explanations. And, and it's not the, just publications by the numbers. It's look where they're published as well. Uh, Thomas gets them into major name journals. Uh, recently, uh, you you had a consensus paper published in Brain, which is not easy to get into. You've been published in Nature uh, publications on neuroscience. Um, uh, uh, again, it, it's not just the number of publications; it's where they've been published. Uh, your 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 uh, academic credentials, um, and uh, you're getting published in major journals, not uh, low impact factor uh, stuff. Not it's not buried in the journal of neurotherapy somewhere uh, that nobody's going to read outside the field. Uh, they're published in major neuroscience journals. So congratulations on uh, uh, reaching out into the neuroscience world for us. Thanks, Jay. Well, you know, well, you have to kind of change the system from the inside. Although I don't believe in impact factors, but that if that's what's required to make uh, some noise, then do it. But I would hope that people would read other journals. And, you know, if people had read a lot of neurofeedback journal, other neurofeedback works that is in smaller journals, we would be on a different trajectory maybe. But Unfortunately, most people don't have time and they, they read just the, the high impact journals mostly. Yeah. Right? Well, well, Thomas, we're definitely bringing you back. So be looking for another invite for say 90 days. We got, we got to have you back. It, it was a great, great show. 
And you asked me to nominate somebody, right, for the next. Oh show. yeah, who should we who, who should we bring on? Well, I've been thinking, and I think unless you've already had Barry Sturman, I think it's it's time that he gives ah. us. Has he had? Has he been on the show? No. no, no, he has not. And it's it's probably a good moment to try to get him on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or or John Grizzelli, of course, my my ex uh, mentor. Uh, I'm just wondering, Barry will have many, you know, stories to tell about the past, and yeah, it's, it's always good to get those out, and, 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 you know, <coughs> and we can have that. R.I.P. to Joe on on that. Yeah, of that course, of course. Okay. We could have spent more time talking about Alpha. You know, we can we can do another session on Alpha. You know, in memoriam of Joe. Yeah, Alpha is my favorite sort of wave that we've been looking at so far. So yeah, there's a lot more to explore, and, and he definitely opened the box on that. Yeah. So. And we dedicate this uh, show to Joe Camayo, just passed away, 90, 95, Jay? I believe he was 95. Around, around there, yes. Yeah. Hell, hell of a life, hell of an impact on, on the field that we're trying to uh, get to the masses. Yeah. Well, well, we thank everybody for listening to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. The contact info for everyone will be located in the uh, podcast notes below. Uh Tons of uh, Thomas's uh, articles will be there. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and please follow us on Twitter. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If nobody's listening, we can't help anybody. And if you really, really like us, buy us a cup of coffee on Patreon. The link will be in the bottom of the show. Cue the band.